Leviticus. I got some uh, bloody colored slides here. There's a lot of blood in Leviticus. So uh, not too many people teach on this book. Not too many preach on this book. It is a, it's challenging to, to do so. But it also uh, deals with an old covenant that, that we don't practice, that we're not part of. And uh, it's hard for us sometimes to, to know what's going on in this book. But it's important. It helps us know about God. And uh, it's there for a reason. Remember, we covered in the first class of this series, all the Old Testament's there for a purpose. It's there for a reason. It's there to teach us. It's there to help us. So let me open in prayer, and then we'll jump right in. Lord, this is your book. It is um, The Bible is your inspired work, and you worked through the hearts of men, through your Holy Spirit, to bring it about. And even the Old Testament, even the first five books of the Bible are important to us. They are they're vital in our understanding of who you are and how you've brought about salvation and truly knowing you, God. Today's sermon is on knowing God better, and we want to know you through this book of Leviticus. Help us to understand your holiness. Help us to understand your glory. Help us to understand our sin. Lord, we're thankful that you have made a way through Christ, that this is no longer required. We don't have to make sacrifices, but help us to remember that a sacrifice was required for our sin. We pray that we would see these lessons today and maybe even into next week. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've got three pages of notes. Uh, second page is a chart that we're going to work through, so it may take two classes to cover all the material. We're looking at Leviticus, the bloody book. What do you guys think of uh, Leviticus normally when you hear or think of this book? What are some things that come to mind? Sacrifice? What else? Holiness of God? Levites, the Levites, the priests, the temple, the tab- or tabernacle, later will become the temple. Yeah, all of those definitely are true sin. It's all about sin. If we weren't sinful, then much of this would not be required. So let's look at introductory material there. Um, in Hebrew, the names are always different. Remember, they, I don't think they had names at the top of their page when they started the books. It's pretty obvious they didn't because in Hebrew they just called it by the first word. So you're opening the scroll there and the first word, Weyakira, Weyakira. And it basically means what it says in our English Bibles if we were to translate that. So open to, oh, go ahead and open up to Leviticus 1. Shemot was last week. That was Exodus and these are the names. But what happens when we get to Leviticus? It's not much... Uh, more extravagant is it it's and he called so in our in ours it puts the lord in front of it but the first word in hebrew is he called and so it's way he called in the septuagint the greek translation it's called levitical the levitical book and that's where we get our name we always get our names usually in the old testament we get our names from the septuagint because it's easier for english to understand greek and we don't want to just call it by the first word. In English, that would be weird. It would just be then. Open the book of then. But the the Greeks, or the Hebrews who translated it into Greek a couple hundred years before Christ, that's what LXX means. It's just an abbreviation for Septuagint. It's the number 70, Roman numeral 70, because supposedly there were 70 
scribes, 70 rabbis who translated it. Probably a myth, but uh, Septa, that's uh, 770, Septuagint. And so we get the name Leviticus from that. It's a book pertaining to the Levites. Who were the Levites? Remember the Levites were of the tribe of Levi, of the, the clan, basically the Levi sons. And so his descendants would deal with all of these matters of the temple, sacrifice, and serving. But Levi is one of the original 12 brothers. So of the, of the tribe of Levi, uh, God had said this tribe would deal with things of the temple, things of the tabernacle. Who's the author? Moses. Moses. And uh, I'll, I'll just, I haven't really brought this up yet, so I, I guess this is a good time. A lot of people doubt Moses' authenticity. Moses wasn't the writer. Even my, my teenage daughter was in a class um, no, my son was in a class and they're covering different people in history and they got to the Hebrews and they're talking about the first five books of the Bible. And some of the students were typing in the online chat box. They were saying, uh, one of them said, actually Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. That's just traditional. We have now know that there were four different authors and each author wrote a different book. And, and there's no proof of that, of course. We know that Moses is the main character from Exodus on and it's always been understood that he wrote it. Uh, how could he not have written it? He is the one who had everything revealed to him by God so he could write Genesis, and then he lived through the rest of it. Uh, but modern scholars, liberals, said in the last century that, you know, there's too much difference from book to book. These were all written later, and some group of priests got together to write Leviticus. Some group of uh, Israelites, not priests, got together to write Exodus to make up a history for their people. That's the liberal interpretation. The traditional and I think if you read it, Moses. Most of the words and speeches in Deuteronomy are Moses, and even the speeches before that involve Moses. So if you ever hear that, it might be called the J-D-E-P hypothesis. Um, it comes up in a lot of commentaries. It's just a way to get around Moses writing it. They do the same thing in the New Testament with Paul. What are the dates of these events? Well, Leviticus... Uh, probably was all delivered to Moses in a 30-day period. God's revelation to Moses so that he could basically hand it to his brother, Aaron, who would then turn around and implement it with a new tabernacle. Look at Exodus chapter 40, verse 17. Now in the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. So they left Egypt. They, they had the Exodus event. God redeemed them. He delivered them. And then about a year later, the first month of the second year. So they've been out now a year. They have traveled around, gotten to Mount Sinai. They received the commandments of the Lord. And they were told to build the tabernacle at the end of Exodus. And that's what they've been doing. So at a year out from Egypt, they've got the tabernacle built. Now we go through Leviticus to Numbers chapter 1. So that was the first month of the second year at the end of Exodus. Numbers 1.1 starts out by saying, Then the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai. So they're still at Sinai. In the tent of meeting, on the first of the second month in the second year. So end of Exodus, they're in the first month of the second year. Beginning of Numbers, they're in the second month of the second year. So that means Leviticus fits in that month. 
And so they've built the tabernacle. Now what do they do? How do they go about sacrifices? How do they worship the Lord there? God tells Moses. He reveals it through this, what we call the book of Leviticus. And that's now the rule book, the guidebook. How do the priests operate? How do the Levites take care of the tabernacle? It's all laid out here in Leviticus. The theme, dedication or holiness. Another word for that is consecration. Consecration. How are the things of the temple and of Israel to be consecrated? How are the people to be consecrated? How are they to be dedicated? How are we to remain holy? If we're part of the nation at that time, how would we remain holy before the Lord? He's saved us. He's redeemed us. Now, how do we stay in the right relationship with Him if we're Israelites in the desert? Now, we're going to the promised land. God's going to start something new. But how do we deal with our sin? And so it's going to be God's instruction on holy living. Go to Leviticus 20. Leviticus 20, starting in verse 22. This is sort of a um, theme verse for the book. What's Leviticus about? It says, you, this is God speaking, you are therefore to keep all my statutes, all my ordinances, and do them, so that the land to which I'm bringing you to, to live, will not spew you out. So you need to do this, he says, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kick you out of the promised land that I'm about to give you. In verse 23, Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I will drive out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. So he doesn't want to um, let them go into the land, and then they just end up pagan again. They're, they don't need to be pagan. They're redeemed. They're God's chosen people. They're the descendants of Abraham. Abraham starts out life as a pagan. He gets saved. His descendants are supposed to be following in that same uh, faith that he expressed. Hence, I have said to you, you are to possess their land. That's going to be the Canaanites that he's going to allow them to drive out. And I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated, that's the idea of holiness, a separation, separation from the world. God has separated you from the peoples, all the other nations. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, between the unclean bird and the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by animal or by bird or by anything that creeps on the ground which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy for me, for I, the Lord, am holy. And I've set you apart from the peoples to be mine. So holiness being set apart, different from the other nations, and continuing in a right relationship with God. So if we were to expand that, make it sound a little more scholarly, put it in a full sentence. Yahweh. Who's Yahweh again? Covenant name of God. The covenant name of God. That's who they would have called their God in that day. And I spoke last week, you can go back and hear the recording if you weren't here, about the tradition of getting rid of Yahweh, turning it into uh, more Adonai sounding, and then Jehovah. And now we've finally gotten back, I think, to Yahweh, although our Bibles don't say that in English. Yahweh gave instruction that enabled him to live among his chosen people. So it's not just us with God, but how does he have his presence right there in the tabernacle with the people and they not be destroyed? So it enabled him to live among his chosen people and enabled his people to have fellowship with them. That's the relationship. 
God's with him. They're with him. And there has to be something occurring. We're going to find out those are the sacrifices. They have to occur or the relationship's going to have major issues. Because why? God can't be present among a sinful people. That's what happens when he leaves Israel. When he leaves the nation in the book of Ezekiel, his presence, his glory departs from the temple because they are no longer a clean people. They are idolaters, pagans. So how do we outline the whole book? I think this first outline is the best way. First 17 chapters is the way to God. How do I even approach God? How do I ask God for things? How do I pray to Him? How do I make myself right with Him? This is not talking about faith. Remember, they're already redeemed out of Egypt. That's the physical depiction of salvation. God's given them the Ten Commandments. You must follow these if you're my people. And what they say? Yes, Lord, we'll do it. We'll do it. Of course, there was the golden calf incident, but Moses mediated for them. God spared them. But they, they raised their hands. They shouted out loud, we will do it. We're your people. So the way to God is through sacrifice. That's going to be in the first seven chapters, the law of five sacrifices. We're going to go through those. The law of the priests. So who's doing the sacrifices? The priests are. They have to be purified as well. They have to be consecrated. Then there's laws of purity for the whole people. Then there's the day of atonement, national atonement. What about the people who aren't priests and uh, who are just living out their life and they, they stumble into sin? How do you make yourself right? That's the Day of Atonement. Secondly, second part of the book is the walk with God sanctification. Does this sound familiar to the New Testament? There's the way to God. How's that in the New Testament? Is it through sacrifice? It is, but not... We don't sacrifice ourselves, right? They didn't sacrifice themselves. They sacrificed an animal to point to Christ. Our way to God is through a sacrifice. Not one that we offer up, but it's already been offered for us. Jesus Christ. They had to continue to live holy and be sanctified. That was part of being in God, with God. Well, today we, we are in Christ. We're with Christ. We have to continue to be sanctified. We will be sanctified if we're truly saved. And it's the same in the Old Testament. Now, it, it doesn't work out exactly the same when we get down to the lower levels here. Laws for the people, laws for the priesthood, laws for worship, laws for the land of Canaan, and then laws for vows. So the second part here is just the law is given for various things, various things that are going to happen. Worship, priesthood, vows, etc. That's not the same as the New, new Covenant, as Christians today. But the big picture, the principle of a sacrifice to get to God, that's through Christ. And sanctification to walk with God. Those principles do carry over for us in the New Testament. If you just wanted to shorten it up and maybe break it out a little bit more. The way, the walk, the worship, the witness. I like the first one. The alternate's just a, a different way of looking at it. God didn't put... Roman numerals for us and divide it out. That'd be really nice for those who teach and preach if God had already sectioned it out for us. But uh, he didn't. We have to study it. We have to figure out what's going on here. Even the paragraph breaks in your Bible are someone's interpretation of where this, this idea ends and a new one begins. 
All right, well, let's look at all those. The key really is the first seven chapters and understanding the sacrifices. This is page two of your handout. Page two. You can probably see it a little better than what's on the screen. There's a lot of different sacrifices. It's nice to have them represented in a chart like this, even though when you first look at it, you say, this is too much information. But we're just going to go sacrifice by sacrifice. So just looking at your Bible, Leviticus chapter one, the first one, is the burnt offering. The burnt offering. Uh, starts in one three. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. So we already start to understand what this is. It's, it's a, a, an offering to be accepted before the Lord. So what is it? What did you do? Uh, you, you offered up the animal to be burnt, except for the hide. The hide was kept, but everything else was completely burned up. That's why it's called a burnt offering. It's offered up on the altar in the temple. What kind of animal? It's a male without blemish from the herd or flock or two birds. So it could be a sheep. It could be a, a cattle. It could be two birds. If you're really poor and unable to do that. If you don't have a herd of cattle, you're not going to go and get somebody else's. That would be stealing. But you can afford two birds. Now the actions of the offer. This is key because when we think of Old Testament sacrifices, what do we normally think? Here's my sheep. You priests go deal with it, right? Lots of blood. The priests are getting bloody. But we think that the person who brought it up is done. It's not that way in most of these. You, as the man of the family, you have to go up and get bloody yourself and do a, quite a bit of work. The priests are there to offer it up to God, but you've got to help chop it up. So what are your actions in a burnt offering? Guys, you've got to bring the animal. You've got to put your hand on its head. That represents the sin nature, in this case, the sin nature being removed or covered. We'll get to that in a minute, but then you've got to kill the animal. It's not, you know, here you go, pastor, you do the dirty work. It's you put your hand on there, and then you're cutting the throat, and then you've got to cut it up. You've got to go hang it out in a place in the temple off to the corner over here where they did that. Put it up on a hook. I know the guys that clean deer every year, this is nothing. But uh, Carl could probably do this in five minutes, right? But you've got to hang it up and you've got to skin it. You can take the hide home with you. We looked at this when we studied First Samuel last year, by the way, guys that were in our class and, and ladies in the Bible study. Um, the burnt offering was mentioned there. Then you've got to wash the entrails. Those can't be offered up when they're all nasty and dirty. You know, they might have been punctured. It could be things coming out. You've got to wash these things up. You're really getting into the idea of the animal has to die and you know it's dead because you cut it up and you're seeing the results of that death. Now what does the priest do? He takes the blood, he puts it on the altar as part of the sacrifice. He places the, the animal on the altar minus the hide, but you've chopped it up into nice chunks for him. And then uh, the priest, I'm sorry, the priest gets to keep the hide. You don't get to keep it. So all that work, what do you get out of it? Well, here it is, to atone for basic human sinfulness. This isn't even your sins that you did in your life. This is just the fact that you're born a sinner. 
How do you stay in a relationship with God if you're born a sinner? God says you need to do this, a burnt offering. And so this is your recognition, really, that I'm a sinner. I'm born in sin. I'm depraved. I have a sin nature. And I'm going to go up and do this burnt offering. Secondly, the grain offering. Grain offerings in chapter 2 of Leviticus. Now when anyone presents a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. He shall bring it to Aaron's sons. These are the priests. And he shall take from it his handful of its fine flour and its oil with all its frankincense. And then it goes on in chapter 2 and a little bit more in 6 and 7 to describe this. So you get a token, you get a little bit of it. Does it say that in two, uh, Aaron's priests, and they shall take from it uh, his handful of its fine flour. So the priest gets a bit, the rest is burned. All this nice grain, it can make all this bread for your family. But what are you doing? You're offering it to God. You're offering it up to the Lord. You're giving it to him as a sacrifice. That's what sacrifice means. You are doing without and offering it up to God. So you have the grain, you have the oil, you have the frankincense. You think that's costly? In ancient times, to have oil would be very nice. That's, that's a, a great thing to have. And then frankincense, that's a spice. That's something that would cost a lot of money. If you owned frankincense, you could sell it and make a lot of money. Or to, to buy it, to do this sacrifice, you would have to spend quite a bit. So what do you do in this case? Well, there's no blood because it's just grain. But you're going to bring it and you're going to take a handful. So you take a handful and then the priest burns a handful. He eats the rest. He eats the rest. So how do the priests get fed? You're going to see all the way down on actions of the priests. How do they get fed? Through these sacrifices. God's provided them a way to be taken care of as they're doing these sacrifices. What's the purpose of this? This is the column that I really enjoy. What's the purpose of the grain offering? To render tribute to a sovereign God. So this is just a way to worship God. This is not something that you necessarily have to do. That's why it says in two one, when anyone presents a grain offering, when it comes up, when it happens, if you decide to do it, it's a special offering to God. And you're giving tribute. You're giving tribute, especially for the priests to eat, right? This is, here you go, God, here's my money. Now you can do with it as you like. And he says, I'll give it to the priests, most of it. Next, the peace offering. Later, there's a similar one called the thank offering. There's also the vow offering. And the only place in the Bible you see the word free will, the free will offering. There it is, free will. Who was looking for it? Don't be shy. I know you've heard about free will in the Bible. Well, there it is, the free will offering. Then it's exactly what it sounds like. It's something you decide to do of your own will. God is not telling you you have to do this. Now we know all things are ordained by God. That's not what free will means here. It just means you're not required to do it on a set schedule. You're not required to do it at all. In that case, it starts in chapter 3. Now if his offering is a sacrifice of peace... If he is going to offer out of the herd, so that's the peace offering. And then in seven, you get those other names that are either the same or very much similar. In that case, you're also bringing an animal. The fat's going to be burned, but the remainder is eaten. You get to have a little celebration. Or someone does. We'll get to that. Uh, male without blemish. So very similar to the burnt offering. Much of these will be similar if it's an animal. 
Uh, it could be two birds if you're too poor. You bring it as the man of the household. You're going to bring it. You're going to put your hand on its head. You're going to kill it. You're going to cut it up. And you get to eat part of it in this one. doesn't say you have to wash the entrails, but I'm sure you probably still would, guys. You probably would eat some of those. you got to eat the liver and the spleen. Those are good for you. Kidneys. But you get to have a feast out of this. This is a celebration. This is a fellowship meal, right? We're going to have a fellowship meal later. Maybe somebody brought some liver and onions. and This is kind of like that. Um, of course, they got to have steak too. I don't know if we're going to have steak, but this is, a, this is celebration. This is not, oh, I've sinned. I'm going to repent. That's, that's important. But this is, God, we love you. And we just want to give this out of our own free abundance, out of our things that you've given us. What does the priest do? He puts the blood on the altar. He puts the fat on the altar. He gets a little part of the animal as well. So everybody's celebrating. It's time time for a, a feast. What's the purpose? Well, it's just to praise God, declare fellowship with Him. That's the purpose. It's not required, but it's to, it's to praise Him. And you, you're showing that you've been delivered. You're praising Him for that. You're fulfilling maybe a vow if, you, if you're in the... Old Testament times like this, you might make a vow one year from now. I'm going to go up to the temple. You remember Paul made a vow like that in the New Testament because he was a Jew. He would still go to the temple to worship sometimes, so he made a vow. And he was going to go up to the temple and offer a sacrifice at the end of that vow. So this kind of offering might be done then. Or to just extol God, to extol Yahweh, to, to lift Him up. You're declaring fellowship with Him. You're worshiping God. Now we get to the sin offering. Now here's one that we would all need to do if we lived in that time. This is not for basic human sinfulness. Uh, what do you do? You, you burn the fat and the remainder is eaten. So it's similar to the peace offering in that way. The animal can be offered of any kind. A bird has to be a clean animal, of course. A bird or even flower in this case. So this is chapter 4 kind of nice how Leviticus just goes in order each chapter here. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, for a person sins unintentionally. This is not your intentional sin. You know, this is not when you you go and you just punch that guy or slap your husband or, or yell out loud intentionally. This is unintentional. This is a sin that you didn't plan beforehand. This is a sin you just stumbled into. This is not you sat and meditated for two weeks on how you're going to steal that money from your boss. This is an unintentional sin. How do you deal with that? Because if you don't deal with it, what's going to happen to you? If you don't deal with unintentional sin, what happens? You're out, right? God's going to strike you down. What happened when people sinned in, in the Old Testament? The whole families were swallowed up into the ground. And so this is a, a serious thing. It's not like, oh, sorry, God, just a little accident. I'm sure you'll be forgiving. Today, everybody says, I'm sure God will be forgiving. He's so loving. He'll forgive everyone of every sin. He'll save everybody. God, God's a God of love. Jesus is a God of love. That's true, but they can't overlook sin. That would make them not holy, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are holy. So you unintentionally sinned. You bring your animal. You do the same thing that you did on the burnt offering. You got your hand there. You cut the throat. You cut up the animal. You wash the entrails. The priest, though, he is doing basically the same thing as a sin offering. 
he's burning just the fat though and he gets to eat the meat you don't get any meat it's like the burnt offering you don't get any but the the priest gets fed so you can imagine these are happening quite often those people are sinning all the time there's a couple three million people in the camp they want to take care of their sin in this way so what is it it's to atone for unwitting sin now we know it didn't actually atone when they put the animal there it didn't clear that out christ is going to do that when he comes but you didn't have christ at that time so what do you do god says you take your animal up and you you do this sacrifice and it's essentially like your sins are forgiven christ comes he actually pays the final sacrifice for it but essentially it's forgiven christ has to come to make it ultimate so that's the sin offering yes that's the day of atonement yeah we're going to get there but yeah, you would have been very bloody in this. Um, I try to see see the red stuff around it there. Uh, you're going to be very bloody. You're cu- you're cutting up a deer. You did that, you done that before? You get pretty bloody your hands anyway. This one would have been extremely bloody. And uh, we don't have all the nice. Well, they didn't have all the ability to wash their hands. So it's said that, like on the Passover, for example, when everybody's crowded into the city, that the blood would have just run out of the temple like a river. It had to go somewhere. Some think that it ran out the back. Others think they threw it out the back into the valley. The blood would have been all over the place when millions of people are coming up to Passover. But that's a separate one. Passover and the Day of Atonement, they're not on here. These are just your personal offerings. The Day of Atonement is for the whole nation. Passover, the whole nation was supposed to celebrate. What do you do individually for your family, representing your family? You have to go and do these. So you have sin, and then lastly on this chart, you have guilt. You have guilt. So that's in chapter 5. Now, if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether uh, he has seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, then he will bear his guilt. Or if a person touches any unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean beast or the carcass of unclean cattle, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, though it is hidden from him, he is unclean, then he will be guilty. Or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort his uncleanness may be, uh, with which he becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him, and then he comes to know it, he will be guilty. Or if a person swears thoughtlessly with his lips to do evil or to do good, in whatever matter a man may speak thoughtlessly with an oath, and it is hidden from him, then he comes to know it, he will be guilty in one of these. So it shall be when he becomes guilty in one of these, that he shall confess that in which he has sinned. He shall also bring his guilt offering to the Lord for his sin which he has committed. So again, this is not intentional sin. I mean, you you did sin, but you didn't realize it for a time. You didn't realize it for a time. You're called to testify. You're supposed to tell people what happened. Did Carl really, was Carl really seen stealing his neighbor's sheep or not? I didn't see Carl. And then two days later, you remembered you did see Carl stealing somebody's sheep. <laughs> but you were just really sleepy and you didn't know who it was. And then later you realized it was Carl. And so what do you do? Now you're guilty because you basically lied, but you didn't realize it. It was, it was what we might call accidental. Well, that's guilt. You have guilt on you now because he's, he might have already been punished for it. Now you're really feeling the guilt. But it doesn't matter what you feel. God says you are guilty. 
So he gives this list of things that could happen. You touch something unclean, he's going to lay out for them in this book what is unclean. You know, you, you just don't care. I don't care what God says. I'm going to take this dead body and do, you know, I'm going to bury it myself and not go through the rituals that I'm supposed to do. I'm going to touch an unclean animal. I'm going to eat some catfish. You know, my Canaanite neighbors are here. They're visiting my distant relatives. And we're going to have some, the Midianites are in the camp. They're cooking some, what's another unclean animal? Uh, pig, you know, shrimp. Going to have a shrimp boil, a pig boil. Um, have some pig skins. It won't hurt if I touch a little bit. You know, or they served you up some maybe and you didn't know that's what it was. You found out next week. You're guilty. Yeah, so Gentiles, we, we eat pork all the time. Right? I love my bacon. I love my bacon. But you can't. God's going to say for a specific purpose, and we'll, we'll probably get to that next week of why, you can just eat what you want. You have to obey God's laws. He's trying to teach a lesson with that. And so if you do these things and find out later that you have guilt, you got to burn the fat. You get to, uh, the priest, I think, is pretty much going to eat the rest of it. The animal, bird, or flower. So look at how God is, is merciful here. You don't have enough money? You bring the bird. You can't even buy two birds? How about a little bit of flour? Everybody's got a bit of flour. That's the basic staple of their diet. So no matter how much wealth you may or may not have, there is a way to do these sacrifices. What do you do? It's pretty much the same thing as the burnt offering. If it's an animal, you've got to kill it and cut it up. Uh, plus restitution. So you've got to make restitution for whoever you may have caused problems. You know, Now, if Carl's already been executed, I can't give restitution to him, but I could to his family, right? Because they're without income. But let's just say Carl, you know, he had to pay a fine. That's more likely. He has to pay, you know, a thousand shekels. I got to pay that. Maybe give him some extra for interest, right? Restitution. What does the priest do? These are the same as the sin offering. He, he burns it for you, uh, the fat, and he gets to eat the meat. So the fat gets burned, and you get to, uh, the priest gets to eat the meat. To repair breach of faith, that's the purpose. You have a breach of faith with God. So that's the sacrifices. What is missing from this chart? We've talked about different ways that you can sin. What's, what's missing here? Intentional sin. Intentional sin. And then there's even the sin of the high hand, which sounds really awful in the Old Testament. The sin of the high hand. You really, you really intended to do that sin. Where is it? Where is it at? Well, there's not one for it. So we can either say, that person's in big trouble, or more than likely it would be covered on the Day of Atonement. Covered on the Day of Atonement. That's a national sacrifice. Uh, Mike was referring to that when he talked about the sprinkling of blood. Go to Leviticus 16. This is not something you would have done. This is done for you. Sound like anything familiar in the New Testament? Something done for you. Were you there to offer up Christ 2,000 years ago? You weren't. It was done for you, wasn't it? It was done for you. He offered himself up as his own high priest. So Leviticus 16 is all about the um, law of atonement. Now the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord. So two sons of Aaron wiped out. The Lord says to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place. 
So there's a holy of holies inside. You can't go there. It's where the mercy seat is on the ark. Or Aaron's going to die and his high priest descendants too. But I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Why would they die? Because God is showing himself. Showing his glory there. Aaron shall enter the holy place with this. With a bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. It's going to be similar to the burnt and the sin. But what's different is you're not taking your animal up. He's taking one of each here. He shall put on the holy linen tunic. And the linen undergarment shall be next to his body, and he shall be girded with linen sash, attired with linen turban. He shall bathe his body in water. So he's got to do some things to get ready. He shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one for a burnt offering. So he's got two more animals now. Then Aaron shall offer the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household. So all of that's just to get Aaron cleaned so now he can go in and offer one for the nation. And it goes on to describe what Aaron's supposed to do for the nation. Uh, Verse 29, This shall be a permanent statute for you in the seventh month on the tenth day of the month. So it's one specific day every year. You shall humble your souls and not do any work whether the native or the alien who sojourns among you. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. So intentional sin probably would be covered here. I don't know about the sin of the high hand seems to be a sin that's even higher than that. Um, I think maybe the sin of the high hand, it's a little bit, a little bit of speculation here. Maybe it is... A sin that just shows you're not trusting in God. It's just one of those sins that's so obvious. This person is not following God that there is no sacrifice. I mean, they've got to they've got to start over by actually coming to trust in God for salvation in the first place. But there's only it's only mentioned a few times, and we won't uh, we won't go off too much on that track. But the Day of Atonement would have covered the sins for the nation, only the nation of Israel though. It's not for other nations. It's not for the whole world. It's not for a Gentile. It's for the people of Israel. And of course, they had to be trusting too. It did not actually cover the sins of an unbelieving Israelite. Because look what it says. You will humble your souls, in verse 29, and not do any work. So what if you don't humble your souls and you do work every year on the Day of Atonement? Well, they would probably kick you out of the camp. You would suffer consequences. But just more proof that you're not actually following the God you said you were following. Verse 32, so the priest who is anointed and ordained to serve as priest in his father's place shall make atonement. So this is a high priest. He shall thus put on the linen garments, the holy garments. He makes atonement for the holy sanctuary. He shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. So not just for the people, but all the things in the temple. He shall also make atonement for the priest, for all the people of the assembly. Now you shall have this as a permanent statute to make atonement for the sons of Israel for all their sins once every year. And just as the Lord had commanded Moses, so he did. Then 17 goes on to describe it more. This is the one where they, they lay their hand on one sheep or one goat, and he runs off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. That symbolizes the actual taking away of sin, the forgiveness of sin. It didn't actually go into the goat. Your sin can't go into an animal. 
But it's a symbol, it's a lesson, it's to teach that God is removing your sin from you, your sin guilt. So the animal goes off into the wilderness. That, that brings up an interpretive issue that we'll look at next week. What is actually happening with that? And then the other goat goes where? To be chopped up, sacrificed, burnt. The blood of which will then be sprinkled on the mercy seat. Not the altar where the big fire is outside. But they burned all the animals they sacrificed. But the high priest goes in. The only time he can go in to the Holy of Holies, the inner chamber of the tabernacle. And he's going to sprinkle blood on the mercy seat where God shows up in, in a cloud above the seat where the cherubim or the golden cherubim are surrounding that seat. What's that symbolize? Those who were in the Bible study, I think two weeks ago, men's Bible study, we looked at this word. The mercy seat is called propitiation. Propitiation. So the goat going into the wilderness symbolizes forgiveness of sins, but along with that, God's wrath is upon you, and to put blood on the mercy seat symbolizes that God has removed his wrath. It's been satisfied by the sacrifice. All of which will ultimately happen in Christ. Which is why the New Testament says Christ is our propitiation. He is the method of forgiveness of sins. Wasn't the mercy seat on top of the It was. So how would he do it without touching the blood? You'd have to just come through the curtain and then throw some over there on it. Which brings up the question, I always wondered, how do they clean that blood out? Couldn't, yeah, because that's going to attract flies. Right. And the curtain's pretty thick, but I'm sure some flies could get in there. It's going to smell. It's going to rot. It could be. I've also read where, where some think that, because the temple is really high, and that there was a way to come in kind of from a balcony. I don't know how they would have done it without looking, but run some uh, long brushes down there. I think I saw that in a study Bible somewhere where it says this is where the priest would go in to clean down in there. He doesn't say. Whatever it was, they couldn't look in there, though, or they would have died. So that's the atonement. Very important. This will be picked up in the New Testament, and Jesus is our atonement. He's not only our Passover, which is a separate feast, a separate sacrifice. He's also our atonement. And so there's no more need for the Day of Atonement, even though today... Jews still celebrated. I think it's called Yom Kippur. And uh, there's no place to go sacrifice, though. So they just have a celebration. It's just tradition, but there's nothing they can do to follow out Leviticus 16. So that's a good way, actually, if you know a Jewish person, to, to evangelize. Okay, you're Jewish. You're traditional Jewish. How do you follow the Day of Atonement law? How do you deal with that? What happens to your sin if it's not dealt with like this? Yeah, well, I, I would say it's not in the text. And uh, God's very specific about his sacrifices. So it's just getting around the fact that they can't do it anymore. Uh, which, which makes you wonder, when the temple was destroyed and they were in Babylon, what did they do? They couldn't do any of these. They couldn't. So does that mean the sin guilt is building up? I mean, we don't really know. God doesn't tell us how that works. But uh, if you're faithful in those days... 
It wasn't like you were going to lose your salvation. Today, if you're, if you're faithful to God, then you'll, you'll hear about the gospel. You'll come to Christ. There's no, there's no other way around that. You can't even get to these anymore in the temple. But yeah, they might try to explain it by charity work. That'd be sort of like me telling somebody, you need Christ. And they say, well, I don't need Christ. I can just do charity work. It's not the same. It's not going to get you to God. Key chapters. Back to your handout. Key chapters. The five sacrifices we just went through. That's the first seven chapters. This is important. The book starts just with those sacrifices. Then we have Nadab and Abihu. What happened with Nadab and Abihu? Strange fire. They offered up strange fire. That's an interpretive issue. What, what was it that they did wrong? And God punished them immediately. You don't think God takes sin seriously? Just because right now he has mercy as people come to Christ? This is his people here doing, supposed to be doing what he told them. And look at chapter 10, verse 1. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. This is the second generation here. The sons of Aaron, they took their fire, respective fire pans after putting fire in them. They placed incense on it, offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And then fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So they're not even in the Holy of Holies. They're just in the, the regular holy place. There's the holy place and then the Holy of Holies. And they, they're supposed to go in and offer up incense. And fire comes out, I guess, I guess from the Holy of Holies. It doesn't really say where it comes from. From the Lord, from Yahweh, and consumes them and they died. That's it. They're gone. So does God care about how he's worshipped? See, the argument today in Christianity is God doesn't care anymore necessarily. He's not that particular. He's not that particular. As long as we say the name of Jesus a few times, sing some songs that kind of point to Jesus, maybe. Some don't even seem to point to Jesus these days. As long as it kind of feels sort of American Christian, then that's all. We can do everything else that we want. It doesn't even have to be in the Bible. It's not true. And in fact, in those days, what would happen if you did that? Well, those days, you're dead. Today, today God is merciful. He's letting these things go on. That's His plan. So in the New Testament, what do we have? We have the four aspects of worship. You guys remember when we covered ecclesiology and the uh, spring? What do we do in church today? What are we going to do? Four elements. We're going to sing. We're going to pray. What else? Read Scripture and preach, all commanded in the New Testament as part of the church service. Various verses that cover that. And there are many more things we do. We do the Lord's Supper. That's commanded too. You're right. Lord's Supper. Now, if, if we didn't do some of those things, or we just uh, threw in some, some skit and some play, maybe a rock concert, and then we didn't have real godly singing, congregational singing, or we didn't have prayer, disobeying God. Now he's not, I don't think he could. He could send fire on us if we disobeyed. He's not doing that right now. That's not how he's working at this time. But that's, that's sinful worship. That's taking worship and doing what we want with it and not what God has commanded. Now he doesn't have as many sacrifices and laws and things that we have to follow in worship. So we're, we're thankful that he gets those, those things and we have some 
way in which they're done, it can vary a bit. I might preach different than Joey, for example, a little bit, but it's going to be from the Word. The Word should be preached. Music's going to be a little different in Africa and China versus here. But what's the common thing we should hear, at least in, if we could understand those languages? The common thing, worship of God, congregational singing, praising God through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That's a command in Ephesians 5. So anyway, Nadab and Abihu is a good example of how holy God is and how we should follow his commands to worship him. Chapter 16 is a key chapter. That's the Day of Atonement. We looked at that. 18 is regulations of sexual conduct. God doesn't care about that in the New Testament, does he? Still talks about it in the New Testament. Jesus does, Paul does, James does, all the way through. Chapter 23, seven feasts. These are celebrations. These are all the feasts that God calls them to. The Sabbath, every seven years, there's a Sabbath year. In chapter 25, it's, it's uh, mentioned. And then the Jubilee is every 50 years. And specific things have to happen in those years. We don't even know if these were ever done. Some of the sacrifices, like the Day of Atonement, aren't really mentioned much after this. Probably they did do it. But the Sabbath and the Jubilee, we don't, we don't know if that was done often. And you wonder in the time of the bad kings whether they drifted away from this. Because remember, they bring back out the Bible. They, they found the book of Deuteronomy. Look, we found the Bible in the temple. How long did they not have it? How long were they not following it? How many pagan kings came in and could care less if they did these things? 26 is all about obedience equals blessing. Disobedience equals judgment. This is not necessarily talking about uh, ultimate salvation. This is saying in this life, as a nation, if you obey, your nation will be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be judged. They disobeyed. Ultimately, they went to Babylon. They were judged. The whole city was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Were there obedient people who went to Babylon? Daniel was taken there. Other, others would have gone with him. Uh, there are people in captivity that are said to be godly like Ezekiel. They're obeying. But as a nation, God said, this is what will happen. If your whole nation starts this way, and this is God's special nation, chosen people, and it works the same way individually for us in the New Testament, doesn't it? He's not sending us to Babylon, but what happens if we sin? What happens if we disobey God as a Christian? Everything's fine? Just go along as normal? No, you're supposed to confess your sins and God is faithful and righteous. But if you don't, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 12, what happens? Especially Hebrews 12. Discipline. That's not eternal punishment if you're truly saved, but it's discipline. It's some hard things might come your way to teach you a lesson. Some spiritual challenges might be tested. That's what James talks about. These tests, these trials. They're there for your good. They're there to turn you back to Him. We can all think of in our Christian walk where we've drifted off for a time and we've followed after our own desires. Some of us more than others even followed after our own desires so much that it didn't even look like we were a Christian. And then God used His discipline to turn us back. But if we obey, does that mean we're going to have a perfect life? No. But God will bring blessings our way. More blessings. Discipline is a blessing, of course, but different kinds of blessings. Key passages. Chapter 17, this is on the atonement. The day of atonement. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. 
What's the lesson there? What's going on in the sacrifice, especially the Day of Atonement sacrifice? The blood, which represents the life. You see blood that's sprinkled on, well, you didn't see it, but you would know the high priest was doing it. He's sprinkling on the mercy seat. What does that mean? A life has to be given. In that case, it was an animal's life. Ultimately, though, that's pointing to Christ. He'll have to give his life to make atonement, to make a covering. Atonement is a covering over sin. 19.2, key passage, you shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Parenthetical thought, I am holy, God says. Does that get picked up in the New Testament? Of course it does. In fact, Peter actually quotes this very idea from Leviticus. You should be holy, for I am holy. Gets picked up in Ephesians, gets picked up in 1 John, everywhere. God is holy. And as believers in him and followers of Christ, we ought to be holy as well. Chapter 20, let's look at that, 6 through 8. No mediums or spiritualists. It's not that big a deal for Christians to mess around with these things, right? It is. So we're... Yeah. Mysticism. New age mysticism. Well, this is, I guess this is old age mysticism here, but uh, verse 6, As for the person who turns to mediums and to spiritists to play the harlot after them, it's a prostit- you're, you're prostituting yourself. You're supposed to be married to the one true God and you're going to try to marry yourself to a pagan spiritualist medium. Basically Satan. I will also set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. This is so serious that God's not going to mess around because if that person comes back into the camp and spreads this idea, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get worse. And it does in Israel. A king is a pagan. He gets a pagan wife. He becomes a pagan. He then brings it to the people. You shall consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Don't mess around with mediums, spiritists, fortune-telling. Um, what's the horoscope? That's what I was thinking of. Horoscopes. Um, what are some other ways? Fortune cookies. Yeah, that's kind of just a funny thing. You need a Joel Osteen fortune cookie, though. That would be better. They have Joel Osteen fortune cookies. For fortune cookies? Yeah. Yeah, of course. That's kind of playful. I got to know what my life's going to be like. Yeah. Trusting in that fortune cookie instead of God. But on the other hand, there are many, not not fortune cookies, but horoscopes are a big deal. You know, for older generations especially, you would look in the newspaper and you would see, you know, what's what's my life going to look like this month? What good things are coming to me? That's not Christian and we need to not do those kinds of things. Uh, there's palm readers are becoming more popular again. There are signs all over the city. You can get your palm read. Tell your future, what's coming. God takes that seriously. What happened to uh, Saul when he went to see the witch of Endor? That was a medium. Key people, we already looked at Nadab and Abihu, two eldest sons of Aaron, consecrated as priests, slain by Yahweh for offering strange fire. God won't take out the two oldest. I mean, they're the next ones in line to be the high priest. Yeah, he will. You know, no one's too high up. 
that, that can't be taken out by God. A couple of uh, resources here. Mark Rooker, Leviticus. I mentioned another book on Exodus from New American Commentary Series. This is the most accessible for you if you don't know Hebrew. It's all in English. Um, it's a little bit in-depth, so if you want to really get into Leviticus or you're teaching it or you're going to do a Bible study. And then uh, Alan Ross has more sermonic, more sermons type of commentary, a bunch of sermons on the book. Of course, Alan Ross is a good scholar, but he's made it very accessible. Holiness to the Lord. Okay, you got to come back, maybe not next week because we have our guest coming, but two weeks from now, we got interpretive issues. And you got to see what I'm going to choose on some of these are fun, like Azazel. The, the scapegoats, actually the word in Hebrew is Azazel. What's that? What is Azazel? There's four different views on that. So a couple of weeks from now, I think we'll go through these and then we'll be on to the next book after that. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for your scripture. We're grateful for your truth. We know that holiness is one of your attributes. It is one of the things that we must also have as believers in Christ. And so when we look at this book and press upon us your holiness and our sin, that without Christ, we would just be trying to offer up sins in Israel every year. And as Gentiles, we wouldn't even have access to that. So grateful for the gospel. We're grateful for the good news. We're grateful for the new covenant. That we had one sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And he's the one that we'll celebrate today. That he's the one that we'll remember in the Lord's Supper. He is our atonement. We're thankful for that. We worship you, God, in the name of our atonement, Jesus Christ. Amen.